But we are in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18 tonight. You'll remember last time, 1 Samuel 17 was the David and Goliath scene. And now we pivot uh, even more uh, into David's life. David and Jonathan um, develop a, an unlikely friendship because we know how uh, Jonathan's father treats David. Now we see that David, uh, by God's grace, has found a friend in Jonathan, and that friendship is going to come in handy. So fresh off of killing Goliath, David and Jonathan, they, they begin this friendship. But unlike the eventual, the, the course of his relationship with Saul, David's relationship with Saul goes quite poorly. David's relationship, his friendship with Jonathan is quite close. Indeed, we're going to see in the fullness of time, Jonathan helped save David's life from his own father, from his scheming. Uh, now that David and Saul are, are living and working in, in really kind of this, this close relationship, the contrast between the two men, it only grows more and more stark. We see how God's presence is with David in a powerful way. And God's presence has left Saul in a very noticeable way. And this makes all the difference between the two men. So let's look at the decline of Saul. Um, there are some markers here, some markers of, of how far Saul has fallen. We're going to point those out, but let's read the, verse, the first 16 verses of 1 Samuel 18. It begins this way. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped, him of the uh, stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David. And his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt... And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So Saul sent, set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, and David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out from all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. And he said, they have, ascri they have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me, they've only ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a hand, uh, I'm sorry, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. And he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand, 
And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. David was afra- Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from the presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. For all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Now, some very interesting things are happening here. You would imagine that Saul, as king, has a problem. He has a problem with Goliath, right? He has a problem with the Philistines. He has a problem maintaining peace and winning victories, winning these battles. And God has given him David. And God has equipped David and strengthened his hands for war so that the Israelites are successful. Now, you would imagine, wouldn't you, that this would solve a problem for Saul. Here Saul is, he's the king. You would imagine it would look bad in front of his people when he can't seem to win any battles. You would think that that would be the biggest threat that Saul would have. And then God comes along and raises up David, strengthens his hands for war so that whenever the Israelites go out into battle, they begin to win. I mean, friends, this last night, and, and I noticed all of my friends from North Carolina are commenting on the game from last night. None of my friends from this area give a hoot about it, right? I mean, last night was one of the most stressful times for a North Carolinian that you could possibly imagine. In the final four, you know, Coach K on his last night, what turned out to be his last night, it was a big thing. I have one friend who's a huge Carolina fan and another friend who's a huge Duke fan, and I saw him post on social media this morning, the Carolina fan, tagging my friend who's the Duke fan, saying, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. That's just a little, a little too on the nose the day after a, a, a sting like, like that last night. But you would imagine, you, you see these coaches of these college basketball teams. If they're not successful, they get fired, right? I mean, if they're not showing results, out with them, right? We need to get somebody else who can grow the program. You would imagine that Saul kind of has a problem because he keeps losing. And I mean, his people who, they don't want to even go out against Goliath because they know they're going to get killed. Here, God has solved a problem for Saul in giving him David. But what does Saul feel? He feels threatened. He feels threatened by David. And he responds in fear. And why? The Bible says he responds in fear because the Lord was with David. Now, that's not a good place to be when you're fearful of the one that God is with, right? I mean, this is a, this is a very confused Saul that we, that we see here. When you don't have the confidence 
of the Lord. Fear is kind of what takes its place. So it's ironic that as David moves closer and closer to the throne, by being inducted into the royal family, I mean, Saul kind of, he seems to kind of have two minds. On one hand, he says, let's bring David into the royal house because you've got to keep your friends close and your enemies closer, right? So let's bring him in. So he brings him in and and David plays the instruments for him to soothe him. But then another moment, he wants to, to throw a spear and, and pin David to the wall. You see this. He's a double-minded man, Saul seems to be. But as Saul brings him in, you can see that David is one step closer to the throne, isn't he? Because he's been inducted into the, into the royal court. But Saul continues to decline David is being used by God to win battles for the people, to bring God glory. Saul less and less has the good intentions of Israel on his mind. He just seems to have himself on his mind. It says in verse 8, if you, if you look there, it says, And Saul was very angry. He's angry at what? He's angry because David is getting the credit. He's angry because they're ascribing to, to David the 10,000. They're only ascribing to me the thousands. The last time a commentator brought this out, the last time that it said that Saul was very angry was in chapter 11, verse 6. He was angry on behalf of the threat against Israel. So just back in chapter 11, Saul has Israel's best interest in mind. He gets angry at the fact that, that there are these people who are, who are putting God's people in, in danger and, and are a threat to, to God's people Israel. But now, why is Saul angry? Because his reputation isn't quite as highly esteemed as somebody else's. Can't you see the decline? What Saul used to get angry over was something good and right. Now what Saul is getting angry over is himself and his own position and his own glory. Saul is not concerned about Israel anymore. He's concerned about his own position and his own acclaim. And he's jealous in verses 6 through 9. Of course, we read about how this just chafes against him when the, when the women come out singing and they're singing about somebody else primarily. It just highlights that, that matters of the heart are always central to God. God is not concerned simply with the outward sins. He is, of course, concerned with that. God is concerned with the heart condition that enables the outward sins, right? Saul's jealousy is the heart, is the heart issue that causes him to act in fear causes him to act in pride, causes him to act in ways that don't serve the people. He's jealous. And out of that jealous heart, he acts in, in ways that really destabilize the people, destabilize the whole nation. The Lord was with David, though. Look in verse 14. This explains David's success. There are two times in this passage that it talks about David's great success, and the second time it explains why. The first time is verse 5. I know I'm Asking you to jump around. Verse 5 says this, And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. 
so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and in the sight of Saul's servants. This would be a great leadership moment, right? I mean, listen, if John, our, our, our youth minister, is successful, like that's a success for me, right? I shouldn't see John as a, as a threat. I should see him as, as the more successful he is, the more successful we are as a church. It's not, not the attitude that Saul has right here. In verse 14, here's the second little installment. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. For the Lord was with him. So the first time he's successful, the second time he's successful, the Bible tells us why. Because God's presence was with him. God's God's presence is with David, but an evil spirit torments Saul. Now, how should we kind of apply some of this? Because at the end of the day, we kind of have a little bit of a, a question mark in our minds. David has been anointed king at this point. He doesn't occupy the throne. This is a strange little time where there are two people who are anointed king. Saul has been anointed king. He occupies the throne. David has been anointed king, but it's not his time yet. So David has been anointed king, but Saul continues to pursue him, right? If you read many of the Psalms, many of the Psalms were birthed out of this really crazy time in David's life where he's on the run from King Saul. He's running, he's hiding out in caves, he has his own little cabal of people. Saul is pursuing him, Saul is trying to kill him here We're starting to see the early rumblings of that where he's in the court, he's in the royal court, and Saul is trying to throw a spear and pin David against the wall. And out of this, David's soul is just tormented and and, and tossed about. We need to understand the sovereignty of God in this moment. God has anointed David as king. That gives us a window into God's design on David's life. Do you think God is going to anoint David as king and then just let him be killed? I mean, I really doubt it. It's easy for us to say because we, you know, we know the rest of the story. But God has anointed David as king. He said, you're going to be king, but do you... Do you see in the Psalms how David is still, still fearful at many times for his life? I mean, this is, friends, this is right where we live. God has already won the battle. We know that in the end, whether we live or die, we are His. To live is Christ and to die is gain. But in the moment, don't we still fear? Don't we still feel the the pain and the frustration and the stress and the torment of living in a broken world. We see here in David a picture that I think we can very much apply to our own lives. God has ordained the end for every one of us. The, the, the hairs on our head are numbered. So why should we worry? But we still do. I would say, let's, let's, let's look to the story of David to get a little bit of insight on our lives. For us, the future seems uncertain, does it? Doesn't it? 
The future seems uncertain for us, but it is far more certain than we could possibly imagine. Because God has ordained the ends of every one of our lives. And while we are tossed to and fro by the waves of this life, God has the end assured. And because of that, we can rest in His perfect control over the events of our lives. I hope that's a consolation to you. But listen to how a couple of verses in the New Testament put it. First... God has a plan for his church. Look what he tells Peter. Jesus tells Peter, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, I as a pastor, I mean, I have, I have concerns about the future. Just looking out demographically, in our denomination, church attendance peaked in 2005, right? So me and a bunch of guys my age are are facing a reality where a cultural trend that the, the, the baby boomer generation and the millennial generation, my generation, those born between 1980 and 1992, I believe. So the millennial, or 1995, the, the baby boomer generation and the millennial generation are about the same size, Okay. The millennial generation does not attend church at nearly the rate that the baby boomer generation does. And of those who do attend church, they are, in my generation, those who do attend church are less faithful, give less, and attend less. And so if we're just looking from a worldly perspective, like the future doesn't look very bright. Right? But the reality is, even though we can have our concerns about the future of the church, there is a promise in Scripture that God will always have a remnant of those who are faithful to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and, and we can put our hope and our faith in that. And so 30 years from now, I hope that I will still be able to support my family pastoring a church here, preferably, somewhere, for sure, I hope. But whether or not 30 years from now, I have to dig ditches part-time and pastor the rest of the time? The reality is that God has said that He will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So no matter what cultural winds blow, no matter what sands the sands of secularism rub against the church, God will always preserve a people who are faithful to Him. And so we can rest in that promise. Romans 8.28 says this on a more, I don't know, tangible level. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? We are secure because salvation is a work of God. Shall tribulate, that was my comment. That's not in the Bible. I'm sorry. I just preached there for a moment. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? We ask these questions to our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine. Shall any of these things separate us from the love of God? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, this is the rock that the church has found. And let us stand on it, come what may. Let us hold fast to the gospel because the end is assured even while the, the days that we live right now seem to, to toss us upon the waves to and fro. We have a God who has promised us that He will never leave His people. He will never leave His people. The next scene provides a, an opportunity for us to make another point. In verses 17 through, through 30, we see God's great care for David as he marries Michal. By the way, this whole arranged marriage situation was brought about because Saul thought that he could use his daughter to get to David, right? And what does God do? God protects David. God has ordained ends, but he also ordains means. This is why, friends, while we, we may have confidence that when we share the gospel, that there are some who will come to believe, we know that no one believes apart from one of us sharing with them. God ordains the means of evangelism. In other words, we should be quick, we should be ready to be sharing the gospel because God has said that no one comes to Him apart from hearing the message of the gospel. So let us share because God has ordained the means by which people come to know Him. Verses 17 through 30, it says this. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Merab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. In other words, maybe he'll go out and get killed in battle. This is so interesting because who, who tries the same little who tries the same little scheme later? when he wants to have Bathsheba all to himself. I don't know if there's, I don't know how deep the connection is here, but it's really interesting that Saul thinks that he can send David out to battle to get him killed, and then David, when he's later trying to cover his own tracks, he thinks up the same little strategy, doesn't he, for Uriah? 
Anyway, verse 18, And David said to Saul, Who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should, uh, that I should be son-in-law to the king? So maybe there's a little bit of humility here from David, maybe a little false humility. Maybe he's trying to get out of a sticky situation. He doesn't really want to marry Merab here. He says, Oh, who am I, Saul, that I should marry your daughter? I really don't want to. But at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the <laughs> Meholathite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. And Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and, and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David says, Does it seem to you a little thing that I should become the king's son-in-law since I'm a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, uh, Thus and so did David speak. And Saul said, Thus uh, shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he be avenged uh, of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. So, the story goes that for one reason or another, David desired to be married to this second daughter. And so he goes out and he kills the Philistines. And he does, he kills more than was required. And he, he wins Michal, this daughter of of Saul. What we see here is, is Saul trying to lure David into becoming his son-in-law. David dodges it the first time. The second time, uh, actually the commentators are not really sure if, if David, what's in David's heart here, if this is a good thing that he's doing or a, or a bad thing, but the reality is God protected him because Saul meant this marriage to be his undoing. Saul meant this marriage to be a snare to him. Saul meant for this marriage to bring David down. But the story goes on. <clears throat> uh, look down in verse 28. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, his daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. His plan doesn't work. His plan to kill him in battle doesn't work. His plan to give him this woman that would be his undoing doesn't work. Here's what we learn. God protected David. Has God ever protected you while you were trying to do the right thing? I can think of times in my life when I've done my best to do the right thing and God protected me. Has God ever protected you while you were being a bonehead? Many times. I'm a bonehead and God protects me anyway. Whatever the case is with David right here, God is showing his great love for his people by protecting him. We are often unaware of the means that God uses to care for us and to protect us. 
How many times have you ever been held up at the house by some frustration only to get out to the interstate and find a wreck and the, the fire department hasn't even gotten there yet? And you wonder to yourself, was this God's provision? Was this God's protection of me? Don't know, but that's just an example. God used powerful friends in the life of Martin Luther. God ordains means. After the Diet of Worms, uh, Martin Luther displayed this incredible faith in God. Um, he was brought up basically uh, in a heresy trial. and They were going to put him to death or, or something. Um, and Martin Luther said these words at the Diet, which is just a, like a trial. Unless I am convinced by proof from scriptures or by plain and clear reasons and arguments, I can and will not retract. For it is neither safe nor wise to do anything against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Now he was willing to go back to Wittenberg, his hometown, and perhaps be arrested, killed. While he was on the way, a group of his friends engineered a ruse. They rode upon him on armed horseback and kidnapped him very loudly so that everybody could see, right? Everybody would think that these were bad guys kidnapping Martin Luther, but it was his friends. and They took him on this very windy, circuitous route to, to the Wartburg Castle where he was kept in hiding for 300 days for his protection. God preserved him. He was faithful to God and God was faithful to him. We should, in the same way that David was, in the same way that Martin Luther was, we should be on the lookout for the unexpected ways that God cares for us. He provides for us the unexpected means that God uses to advance His wise and loving purposes in our lives. He has shown us to be that kind of God in the Old Testament. He has shown us to be that kind of God in the New Testament. And friends, we can praise Him tonight because He has promised to be that kind of God to us. Let's pray and we will respond. God, thank You for your word. Thank you for giving us a clear word in the scriptures. You have promised that you will be faithful to us. You'll be faithful to us in life. You'll be faithful to us in death. You will protect us from all physical danger so long as you see fit. And if it should come to pass that it is our time to die, and to be with you, you have promised that you will carry us safely through those waters as well and bring us home to be with you in glory. To live is Christ, to die is gain. We see this picture in the life of David. You were faithful to him. We see this picture in the life of Jesus. You were faithful to him. And we no doubt have stories of our own lives where you have been faithful to us. Lord, help us. Help us to have a faith in your character. Help us to remember 
that you are the God who will not fail to keep your promises and help us to live and to move and to act as if we really believe that you are this kind of God. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.